You know, I've been thinking about the aspects of church and what church looks like and how, and, and by the way, when I say church, I'm not talking about the building if you're new here. Uh, this, the, this building is where the church gathers together. We come together here for the simple purpose of having God minister to our hearts so that we can go back out there. We gather to scatter. And then we do it again and again and again. And God keeps meeting us and teaching us and growing us as we gather and we scatter. But we don't just do it here. We do it in homes as well, all, all around this community. And so we gather and we scatter. But as I've thought about the various aspects of my life growing in Christ and thinking about your lives as you're growing in Christ, it, it dawned on me in... In conversations that I've had with people, nobody from this church because you are all too smart, but other conversations I've had with people, they don't have a clear understanding of the foundation that, that God laid for us in the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, what he did is he laid the foundation for what was going to happen in the New Testament. And if all we do is spend our time between Matthew and Revelations, we're missing out on a huge part of what God has for us. As my professor used to say, you'll never understand the New Testament until you understand the Old Testament. So let me try and help you understand this a little bit better. It's like someone who's going to go buy a new home. They drive around town and they look for the for sale signs in the yards and they finally drive up to one that catches their eye. It has an appeal to them. They're looking at that house and they're going like, I really like the way that house looks. It has great curb appeal. You look at the roof line and you're going like, you know, that roof line is awesome. I really like the way things come together. You look at the exterior of the home, the windows and the way it's all laid out, the sidewalk leading up to it. It's called curb appeal. And you like all of what you see in that house. So you make an appointment with a realtor and you go through the home. And when you walk into this new home that you're thinking about buying, one of the first things you do, particularly guys, pay attention to this if you're buying a home recently in the near future. Take your wife to the kitchen first. Let her take a look at the kitchen and see how great it is or what she would like to have done differently. Then go to the bathrooms and then through the bedrooms. And after you've looked at all the if I can put it this way, eye candy of the house that's appealing to you, then comes the hard work. Because you want to know, is this house built on a 2x4 construction or a 2x6 construction? What is the R value of insulation in my exterior walls? What's the R value of the insulation in the ceiling? Is there a basement or a crawl space and has it been insulated? You want to know all those things about that house. You want to know when it was built. You want to know if the plumbing is up to date. You don't want plumbing from like 1937 necessarily because it's probably not going to last very long. You want to make sure all your pipes in the house are in good order that you're looking at. Then you want to find out what kind of heating you have going on in the home because if it's electric, that's going to cost you more than natural gas. And so you have all those things that you're looking at and you're wondering about the flooring and everything, but there's still one huge thing that you have to take into consideration. What's the foundation of the house like? What's it built on? Are there cracks in it? Is it strong? Is it sturdy? Is it going to last for the next 50 years while I live in this house? Those are all the things that we have to take into account when we're buying a house because all that data, all that information you're taking in is going to help you to make a wise decision on whether you're going to buy this house or not. If you crawl around in the crawl space or underneath or you walk around the outside and you look at the foundation and there are chunks of concrete falling off of it, it's a good bet you probably shouldn't buy the house. It might fall down on you. You know, when we bought this building, we hired an engineer from Casper to come in, to go in the crawl space and crawl around and look at everything that's down there. 
And then we sent him up into the attic and said, look at all the stuff that's up there. Because what we had to find out was, if we buy this building, can we change the layout of this building? And after he crawled around down there and, and looked at everything and did all his stuff, he came out and he said, the foundation under this building is absolutely spectacular. I haven't seen one this good in a long time. That gave us reassurance that we were moving in the right direction. And, and everything was good up there. That are, that's why we were able to push walls out and do all the stuff that we've done because we got a good report, we got good information. Now, let me bring that up to where we're at today because if, if we don't understand some of the things that are taught in the Old Testament, we will only have a partial picture of what's going on in the New Testament. So let me introduce you to one of my favorite Old Testament Bible characters. His name is Joshua. There's a book at the beginning of your Bible, the sixth book in, called Joshua. Joshua is one of my favorite guys because... Uh, of all the stuff that he had to deal with. And at the end of his life, he is called God's servant. That's, that's the epitaph we want on our tombstones. Here lies Ken Simon, God's servant. Joshua was part of the Israelite nation when they were being held captive in Egypt and they became the slaves to Pharaoh and Pharaoh used them and, and worked them really hard in order to build his kingdom. But God sent, as you know, Moses along, not Charlton Heston, but Moses, sent him along to free Israel from the grips of Pharaoh in Egypt. After, there's a big section in there on that and the ten plagues and all of that. Read that in Exodus at the beginning. It's really great. But Joshua was one of those kids that grew up in Egypt under slavery. And so he was 20, right around 20 years old, when Moses came on the scene and said, Hey, Pharaoh, let my people go. After a, a little uh, battle between Pharaoh and God, Pharaoh relented and let the Israelites go. And so they take off all three million of them, their cows, their camels, whatever they had, chickens, ferrets. I don't know if they had ferrets. But they took them all with them. So this huge entourage, three million, that's more people than live in Wyoming, leaving Egypt, and they're heading towards the promised land, now modern-day Israel. And as they're heading, they're going down to this location on the Red Sea where they're, they find themselves. And all of a sudden, six days into this little jaunt down, Pharaoh goes like, was I nuts? I let my workforce go. So he got his chariots and his army together, and they chased after the Israelites. And so when Pharaoh shows up, the Israelites' back are on the Red Sea, and they're, they're afraid. And what does God do? We all know what he does. He says, Moses, take your staff, put it in the water. The water parted. The Israelites walked across on dry ground. And then the chariots go like, well, if they can do it, we can do it. So they run their chariots in there. Moses touches the water again. The water drowns all the Egyptians, including Pharaoh, dead. So a little bit while after that, there is... Uh, as, as they're going on, not long after that, they run into, uh, I better look up his name because I'll say it wrong and then I'm going to be kind of goofy on that. Amalek. Amalek. Amalek came out to fight against Israel. And so Moses, he turns around and who does he tap on the shoulder? He doesn't tap a guy who's 40 or 45 years old he doesn't tap a 30 or 35-year-old guy. He taps Joshua, this young 20-something kid, and he says, gather an army, go out and defeat Amalek. And Joshua's going like, okay, let's do it. So they gathered up some spears and some swords and bows and arrows, and they went out, and um, Moses went up on the hill, 
and held his staff over his head like this. And as long as Moses held the staff over his head, Joshua and his men prevailed. But, you know, this is a battle that goes on for hours. And by the way, Moses, he was 80 years old when he's holding the staff over his head. And all of a sudden, his arms are getting tired, and so it drops. And when it drops, the, the Amaleks take over and start to beat the Israelites. And so, so Aaron and her hold up Moses' arms, and Joshua and their men defeat the Amalekites. Done. It's, it's a done deal. Joshua became very popular because he led that army. He was a young guy that had leadership skills, and he led the army, and he knew how to fight, and he brought the victory with God's power and help. So you, you have this picture that Moses has tapped this guy. Moses saw something about Joshua, and he loves him. So he taps him on the shoulder and says, come along, let's go do stuff together. And so Joshua, you find Joshua trailing in the shadows of Moses, learning from a great leader. They come to the point where they're now ready to, to at the edge of the promised land. And so Moses gathers one guy from each tribe. There are 12 tribes of Israel. And he says, you're going to go into the country. I want you to go in and spy out the land. So there's 12 spies that are going in. Two young pups are going in, Joshua and his buddy Caleb. And, and so they have 40 days to go in and spy out the land and then come back out and tell all of the 3 million people what they saw. So the spies went in. They did their thing. They looked around. They brought back big bushes of grapes. And everything was wonderful and marvelous. It was absolutely... And they came out and all the spies said, this land is flowing with milk and honey. It is unbelievable, the fruit and the fig trees and the olive trees that they have in there. The soil is fertile. We can grow all kinds of crops in there. And, and all of Israel's going like, all right, let's go in and take the land. But then 10 of the 12 spies said, however, they've got some guys in there that are like giants. They make us look like grasshoppers. They will crush us. They will kill us. And they'll kill all of the men. Then they'll take our wives and our children and make slaves out of them. We're not going in. We want to go back to Egypt. And Joshua and Caleb step up to the plate and they go, Are you kidding me? That's what you saw? We saw all the stuff that God's provided for us in there. And if God is with us, and by the way, He is with us, then those inhabitants of the land that God has given to us are like bread to us. We just pick it up and eat it because God's in it. But the whole nation of Israel rebelled against, against God, against Aaron, and against Moses. They wanted to kill Aaron and Moses, but Joshua and Caleb intervened. And then all of a sudden, the glory of God came out of the tent of the meeting, right on the edge of it, and brought fear to everyone. And God made this promise to Israel. Because of your disobedience and your rebellion against me and my servant Moses, every man and woman who is of the age of 20 and older will die in the desert. You will die in the desert. You will not take the land that I have promised your forefathers. You will all die, every last single one of you. Oh, exception to the rule, Caleb and, Mo and Joshua. Those two boys, they have my heart and they're going to go in. But here's what happens. Here's the interesting thing that happens is that Caleb and Joshua now have to wander around the desert for 40 years waiting for all those naysayers to drop over and die. If I would have been them, I would have been sneaking into a few people's tents at night with spears. Hurry the process along. But it was 40 years of wandering around in the desert. And here's the part I want you to get about Joshua. There was never one, Joshua and Caleb, but my boy Joshua. There was never one moment in the 40 years that he wandered around where he threw a pity party. 
where he didn't look and go like, I can't believe it. I, he never complained. There was nothing going on. He never said a peep about what happened or what took place. He's part of the community, so he's going to suffer with the rest of the community. He could have said, you know what? Me and my boy here, Caleb, we did absolutely everything right. We went in and spied out the land. We saw that it was good and that God has given it to us, and, and, and we could take it. But these people over here have said, no, we don't want to do that because we're scared. And now I have to suffer for their lack of faith? God, that's not fair. Moses, what do you think? That's not fair either. Let Caleb and I take a couple of our, take our girlfriends into the promised land and start early, would you? But he didn't do that. Do you know why? Because his heart and his mind were set on the promised land as he wandered around in the desert. He knew there was a better day coming. He wasn't getting anxious about anything. He knew that even though the circumstances that he was in was not where God have, has originally wanted him to be, that's where he was right now, and so he's not going to grumble or complain about it because he knows that there is a day coming when he will step into the promised land. He also knew that God had made this Enormous promise to those who are going to go into the promised land. And that's found in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 11. It says this. This is what God promised to them. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Your territory shall be from the wilderness uh, to the Lebanon. From the river, the river Euphrates, to the western sea. No one shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will lay fear, the fear of you and the dread of you on the land that you shall tread as he promised you. In other words, as soon as you step into the promised land, every place that you walk is yours. You don't have to ask for permission. I, the Lord God, am going to give it to you and I'm going to strike fear into the hearts of all the people so that they will flee from you. That's the promise that he had from God. His heart and his mind were set on the things that God had already promised to him, even though he wasn't experiencing them right now. All right, so here's the big question. How does that story have anything to do with the New Testament? What is it, more specifically, what does it have to do with Colossians? Because we're studying through the book of Colossians. Well, if you remember as you read through the Gospels, and you have read through the Gospels, right? You will hear Jesus saying something like this. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. In God's kingdom. And so there's always this kingdom mentality and thought going on throughout the New Testament. And, and, and Jesus often talked about it in that way. And, and, and he did that before he was uh, ascended into heaven. He, he spoke also of that he was going to go, get this, he's going to go to heaven and he's going to prepare a place for all of us. Okay, you didn't get that. He's going to prepare a place, as the Texans say, for all y'all. Y'all going like, I've never been there and I haven't seen it before, so I don't know what it looks like. I don't know if I really want to go. All right, let me try it again. The streets are paved with gold. There's going to be a big feast where the best wine that's ever been served will be served. Pheasants will be eaten along with various other wild meat. Still no amen. Okay, I got to work a little better. I got to. All right. But what Jesus did was he told us where he was going to go and what he was going to do for us so that our minds and our hearts would be uh, on what Jesus was doing because what Jesus said he was going to go do in heaven, there's a whole lot more of what he's going to do here on earth before we get to heaven. A whole lot more. Now, if you want to, and you've brought your Bible or your 
uh, phone or your other tablet thing and you want to turn your app to Colossians 3, we're going to be looking verses 1 through 4. Here's what it says. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. When Christ, who is, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. All right, before we dive into this section, I do want to help you understand something. In the first, first two chapters of this book, this letter to the Colossians church, Paul laid out theological and doctrinal arguments or foundation for the church. In the first two chapters, he's saying, here's the theology, the doctrine that you need to have in your heart, in your mind, Settled deep within you. And theology and doctrine are really important to keep us from going astray. The last two chapters is where, where he takes off of, from the theology and he brings it to practical application. Theology and doctrine without application means nothing. It's hollow. It's empty. It's head knowledge. There's no heart movement. And so Paul's now making that transfer from, from our theology and our doctrine to how we live this out in our lives. It, you know, it's good to have this foundation. But there's a whole lot more to it than having knowledge. There are a lot of people who, who will come and they will find the truth. The truth laid out in the Bible, in God's Word. They will stand up and they will declare it loudly. They will defend it with their lives. But yet, what happens is, is that they have a lack of failure or a failure, straight out failure, to demonstrate the theology and doctrine that they so much love and proclaim. They don't demonstrate it in their lives. There's this profession of some kind of faith. They've come into the church. They know the books of the Bible. They know where to turn in their Bible. They've read some verses. Their Bible probably looks a little bit like mine. They've marked some, some spots up with, with pencil and pen, and they've written notes all over it, and they've memorized some of the passages in their Bible, and they really like it, and they really, it's really awesome to them. And, and they, they take this, and they've learned the language of the church. I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. I'm sanctified, justified. We learn the language because it's called church and ease. You have to speak the language when you come into the foreign country. So they learn the language, church and ease. They understand some doctrine. But the problem is, is when they walk out the back doors and they go down the street, half a block from this building where the church gathers, They've totally forgotten what God was saying to them. And if you forget what you've heard, there's no way you can practice what you've learned. And that's what Paul's saying here as we step into this. Often what a person believe, believes has no direct relationship to how they behave. And the sad part is, is that there's a lot of surround watching bad behavior and saying nothing about it. Naughty. Paul, when he wrote his letter to his child in the faith, Titus, he said, Titus, here's some things you need to know. In verses 15 and 16 of chapter 1, he said this, To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Get this? They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Paul must have gotten a little bit riled up about something, about the way people 
were behaving and living. And he wrote this letter to Titus and said, get after him. I can't come, so you're going to have to go get after him. And what we believe has a very definite connection to how we behave. If you say you're not a liar, but you tell lies all the time, nobody believes you. It just doesn't connect. Our faith is in Christ. And being that we are in Christ, we are united with Christ, then we share in His life. Therefore, we must follow Christ's example. We cannot... Jesus is not going to let His Holy Spirit live in us. He does. But he's, as He's living there, He's not going to permit us to continue to live in sin. It's just not going to happen. That's why you feel pretty crappy sometimes. Did I say crappy in church? That's why you feel kind of poo-poo-y sometimes. When you've said something or done something to somebody and you walk away and for about two seconds you feel really good because you've just told them off, but about five seconds after that, the Spirit of God is poking you in your conscience and saying, you did not reflect my Father. God's called us to live as we believe. We need to move from our doctrine to duty. So let's go back to Colossians 3, 1 through 4. We're just going to look at a little bit at the beginning. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Let me go right back to the beginning. That little word, if you have been raised, it isn't questioning whether we have been raised. It's not like there's a doubt that we have been raised with Christ because we learned over the last few sermons that we have indeed because of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and ascension into heaven, we live with Him. We have already been raised out of our old life into the new life in Christ. So it's not casting doubt on whether you're there or not. What he is really saying, this might be a better way to say it. Since you have been raised with Christ, do these things. That's what he's telling us. So what are the things? He says, seek the things that are above. Well, what are the things that are above? Are we talking about seeking to be in heaven? Is that what is that what Paul's saying? Like he's going like, all right, Pastor Ken's going to have Kool-Aid after church. Everybody drink it because we'll all go to heaven. No is the answer to that question on the test that's coming up at the end of the sermon. I'm just kidding for all you that have test anxiety. Let me, let me first go to what he's not talking about. Because what he is not talking about is us dreaming about the fact that one day we're going to be sitting, there's going to be the Father sitting on the throne, and Jesus is at the right-hand side, and then there's the Holy Spirit, and we're going like, I'm right up there with the apostles, I'm going to be sitting right next to Jesus, that's kind of the dream I have when I go to heaven. No, that's not going to happen, Okay. Uh, it's not about the room that God's prepared, Jesus went to prepare for us. That's not what Paul's saying. Think about because Jesus ascended. He said he's going to go prepare a room for us so that he may come back and get us and take us to, to dwell in that room. Are, are we thinking about what that room's like? I want really, you know, soft pink curtains and shag and nothing too, you know, leatherly. No, that's not what he's saying either. What, what he is talking about when we talk, he's talking about thinking on things above has to do with Christ's sovereign reign over this universe. And, and his power fills this universe. That is his character, his presence in our lives. His heaven, he's brought his heavenly joy to here on earth. And we experience God's joy, Christ's joy, in the middle of our trials and tribulations. In the most despairing times of our life, we can experience the joy that Jesus gave to us because He went to heaven. We, we get to know the peace of Christ that passes all understanding while we live in the middle of a storm. 
It's his guidance when we've seemed to lost our way. We don't know where to go or what to do or how to do it. And we ask God and he says, go here, this one step. Remember what the psalmist said, your word is a light unto my path, a lamp unto my path and a light unto my way. I've said this before. I'm going to say again because there may be some new people here. When the psalmist talked about that, he's talking about taking a lamp in the night to go down the path and see where he's heading so he doesn't fall off the cliff or into a pothole and break his neck. But the thing about the lamp that he's carrying isn't a billion-watt flashlight like we have. It's this little bitty lamp that sits just in the palm of your hand. There's oil in it, and a wick comes out. And so you hold that little thing in your hand, and all it does is lights up the next step, and then the next step, and then the next step. It doesn't shine out there for a quarter of a mile so you can see everything. God's saying, take the next step. And if you don't know what the next step is, he'll tell you. That's what he's going to do for you. Because he's the one that's committed to us more than we're committed to him. It's just not having knowledge on the journey of life. But it's the knowledge of who we go on this journey of life with. Everybody say it. Jesus. And the body. The family. The community of faith. It's never just this. It, it, it always includes this. All of you are on a journey together with each other so that we do what God's called us to do. We hold each other accountable. The great thing for us is that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. And while he sits there, he is our advocate. Do you know what an advocate is? It's someone who speaks for you on your behalf to someone of great authority. Jesus is our advocate to the Father. So he speaks for us. He speaks for me. He speaks for you. He speaks for those people back there by the bathroom. He speaks for the people that are hanging out at the coffee pot. Don't look. Nobody's there. I'm tricking you. He speaks for all of us. That's what an advocate does. But I want you to know something. Jesus has given to us his word, the spirit of Jesus or the Father, the Holy Spirit, so that we know what to do. All we have to do is do it. When I am most satisfied in God, he is most glorified in me. That's what John Piper said. When we are most satisfied in God, He is most glorified in us. Are you satisfied? Are you satisfied with God? Are you satisfied with the relationship that you have with God? In Matthew 6, Jesus said this, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I want you to understand something. Being, thinking about things above doesn't mean that's all we think about and that's all we do. There's a whole lot more to it than doing that. But that's where our thoughts start. We think about the things of God that way that when we are dealing with the things here, it makes sense to us because we're seeing it through the lenses of God. And that's why Jesus said, seek the things of God first. And then all this other stuff that you need or want or, or, or have a desire for, that God will add to you. Jesus is not saying that we're just to move in an extreme position of self-denial. That's, we've already talked about self-denial to the extreme where we, we're denying ourselves good food and shelter and clothing and, and, and doctors and all the rest of that stuff. When we deny ourselves that stuff because we're trying to act spiritual, Jesus is going like, that's not what I said by being thinking about the kingdom of God. That's not what I'm saying about seeking God's kingdom. That's not it at all. It comes back to this place where we're seeking heavenly things and then the rest comes to us. 
Jesus also said in Matthew 7, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For anyone who asks, receives. And anyone who seeks, finds. And anyone who knocks, it will be opened. There is this this progression of, of things that happen in our lives and we wonder why things don't happen all the time. It's because we're not seeking the kingdom of God, but we're asking for the kingdom for myself. I want my stuff, but I'm not interested in your kingdom right now. I'll do that some other time. What comes out of our heart depicts what our motives are. If your heart is after earthly possessions, then your motive is not motivated on earthly things. It's on on heavenly things. It's on earthly desires. And the more you fill your life with these earthly desires, the things that you wanted, the more dissatisfied you are with life. You know the, the KISS principle? Keep it simple, stupid. Unless you're talking to your wife, then it's keep it simple, Sweden. That's what, that's what God's telling us. Let's just keep things simple. All right, let's move on. Um, let's pick it up where it says, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. What does it mean to set your mind? Setting your mind on things above. In here, it is a present imperative. That's for all you English majors out there. I have no idea what that means, but I just thought I'd throw it in there. No, here's what it means. A continuous, ongoing effort is required. Setting your mind on something, present, putting my mind on it on an ongoing time. It's not a one-shot deal. It's something we continually do. We are to persistently seek and keep on seeking. Paul says we are not to set our mind on earthly things. Let me tell you, there are two kinds of earthly things. There's the good earthly things, and then there's the rotten egg earthly things. All the earthly things that are rotten egg-ish, you will find them to be sinful. I mean, I don't, I don't need to make a list, but, but there's, uh, okay, I'll make a list. There's lying, there's backbiting, there's gossip, there's slander, there's anger, there's malice, there's adultery. There's fornication, there's homosexuality. All those things are on the earth. Don't set your mind on those things. We also have on the earth, baby Henry. He's right over there. Uh, Little kids in the nursery, kids in our husbands, our children, our wives, our families. The car I drive, not evil, not sometimes it's evil. It didn't start this morning. Wicked little truck. We've got all these things around us. They're material things. Don't set your mind. Definitely don't set your mind in the cesspool. And don't set your mind on earthly things. Set your mind. Set your mind. Continually be thinking about the things that are above. We, we, Paul's not suggesting that as Christ followers we withdraw from commerce or business or being in the community or living amongst our neighbors. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that we should pull away from making money or prominence or achievement. That would be taking things to an absurd place. Because if that happened, there would never be any Christ-following surgeons or chief of police. We wouldn't have job supervisors that are believers. We wouldn't have um, teachers or administrators at the schools that are Christians, Christ followers. If we all just kind of took the back seat and said, no, give it to that person because I'm a Christ follower. I don't deserve a raise or a promotion. That's not what he's saying. He is saying that we're in the community of faith we need to see things differently because we are in that faith. Matter of fact, in Luke 18, there was this young, wealthy religious leader. Remember, religious leaders are the ones that had all the prominence, power, and wealth in Israel. It wasn't the politicians. 
It was the religious leaders. And so this young religious leader, he comes up to Jesus, and what he says to Jesus, he says, Rabbi, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus sensed in the man that this was a sincere request, that he wasn't trying to trap Jesus or throw a curveball at Jesus, but he was sincerely asking because he wanted to know. And so Jesus did this little spiritual inventory with him, checked him out, said, all right, let me ask you a few questions. Okay, go ahead. So um, have you, you know, followed all the commands to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, um, not to steal, not to lie, not to commit adultery, not to covet your neighbor's wife, um, not to any of those things. How have you, and, and the guy answers, all those things I have done since my youth. I have been following the word, the commands of God. Jesus didn't call him out on it and say, you're a liar. I know. No, he, he, he really has a sincerity there. So then Jesus comes back to him and he says, well, there's just only one thing left for you to inher- inherit eternal life. Take all your possessions, sell them, and give the proceeds to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. And this wealthy, young, religious guy walked away really sad. Because he had great, great, great wealth. A lot of wealth. And Jesus turned and he looked at his disciples. He says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not because they're wealthy. Jesus wasn't smashing and bashing wealthy people. Jesus hung out with wealthy people. They were some of his best friends. But what his, his point is, is that it's their wealth. Their mind is set on their wealth, not on the kingdom of God. I mean, I would love for all of you to be wealthy if you were still kingdom-minded. But if you're, if you're thinking all the time about how am I going to make more money? Why don't I have enough money? I need more money. Money, money, money. Then you are not kingdom thinking. You are not thinking on things above. Your mind is set on earthly things. On this pile over here. Don't go that one. This pile over here. So Paul goes on to say, you know, and the way we get out of that mindset, here, let me, go, let me back up a little bit. Two things. I don't know who said it, but somebody smarter than me said this. That the last thing that is redeemed by God in the human being is their wallet. That's the last thing they give to God, if they ever do. And this is how we get our, out of that mindset of just having our life here on these earthly things. We need... We need to hold tightly on setting our mind on the things of God and hold loosely the things here on this earth. This way with the stuff here, but with up here, we hang on to it because that's our life. Here's the prayer we would all want to pray, and we should pray. Lord, set my things on above and help me to remain in you and your word remain in me. You don't know what to pray when you go to bed tonight? That's the prayer. Paul goes on to say that your life is hidden with Christ. When you came to faith in Christ, you were baptized. And in that baptism, you were identifying yourself with Christ and making the proclamation that your allegiance is now with Jesus. What does that mean to you? To have your life hidden with Christ. It means that no one can pluck you out of God's hand. You are inseparable and secure forever with Christ in God. They might be, the banker might come down and take your home. Someone might steal your car. You might lose all your money on the stock market. But nobody, not even the devil himself, can steal you away from God. You are secure in that relationship with Jesus. Paul says it in Romans 8. He says, 
For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels or rulers or things present or things to come or nor powers nor heights nor death, depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You put your things on above and your hope is in Christ, in Jesus. That's where you are. You're secure in your relationship with God. Nothing from your past can undo what God has done. Nothing in your future will negate your position with Christ. So let me, let me just kind of help you out here a little bit. I have an envelope here. And I want you to get the picture of this. This is not my $100 bill. It belongs to my wife, and I was told to give it back to her after church. But I do have this $100 bill that belongs to my wife. I'm putting my wife's $100 bill, and you're watching me do it. I am sticking it right here in this envelope. I, should, I don't have a pen or I'd write your name on there, honey. I'm going to write on the back, do not open till Christmas. <laughs> All right. You saw me put that $100 bill into this envelope. Where is it? In the envelope. Can you see it? But you know it's there. Is it hidden? It is because you can't see it. This is your life in Christ. You are enveloped by Jesus. No one, nothing, know-how can get a hold of you. You're, you're right there. I will say that there is uh, willful disobedience where we step away from God and then we ask the stupid question, why did God leave me? Uh, hey, he didn't leave you. He's right where you left him and he's waiting for you to come back to that spot. So your life is hidden like this $100 bill in this envelope and, and it's in there. And the only way you will ever see it is when that envelope is open and it is retrieved. That's the future that Paul points out to us. Because he says, when, you, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Right now, our lives are hidden with Christ. But when he is revealed at his coming... His in His glorious body, we will also be revealed and taken out of the envelope and be new and perfect just like His body. Remember, I put that $100 in here. And now Jesus has come and He's taking my body, which is broken and busted up in more ways than I, I want it to be, and He makes it brand spanking crispy new. No wrinkles, no blemishes. Doesn't look like the one she gave me. That one's mine. I, I want you to really get this because our citizenship, according to Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to the subject uh, all things to Himself. Finally, thank you, Mary. Here's what it means. When Jesus appears, it's not going to be a $100 bill. That's just like a fire starter in heaven. Okay? But it, it's going to mean no more gout. It means no more headaches. No more kidney stones. No more cancer. No more dislocated shoulder. No more depression. No more continuous backache. No more fighting with my spouse. Everything will be new. The bondage and the effects of sin will be done forever. That's what we have because of Christ.
We sojourn together through this life here. All of us. Together. But, but Jesus has called us, as well as Paul, to set our minds on things that are above, not on the things that want to interfere with the things on above, that are above. I'm not saying that the things of this earth are bad or wicked or evil, but when they take the wrong priority, when they take our mindset rather than our, our mindset willfully being put on Christ Jesus, then we have stepped to a place where God says, don't go there. Because this is a slippery slope. Your mindset isn't on Christ, it's on something else. I'm going to tell you, it's just a heartbeat away from total failure. Total failure. And if you don't believe me, come back next week. Because that's what we're talking about next week. What happens to the mind that is not set on Christ? In light of all this... Let us fix our thoughts and our mindset on things above, not on the material and immaterial things of this world. We need to pray for the mindset on the things above that, that are in Christ Jesus and to hold God's word close to our hearts, to reflect on our past history, but to rejoice in anticipation of our future with Jesus. Your life in Christ is secure and inseparable. So go live your life like you belong to Jesus and not the world. Amen? Father, I thank you. That's the desire of our heart is to live like Jesus. But often we find ourselves caught up in the fray of the stuff of this world. And it drags us down. And we go from looking to you, Jesus, to gazing at our own navels and thinking, I've got a pity party going on because nobody loves me. Nobody cares for me. Everybody's out to do their own thing and nobody wants to help me. But yet you said that there is nothing on this planet ever in the, in the whole universe that will ever separate us from your love. And so we come and we cry out to you and just ask you to remind us of your great love for us so that we are solid in, in our position with you. Help us to step out and start to live what we believe for your glory and for your namesake. Help us to be satisfied in you today so that you'll be most glorified in us. We pray in Jesus' great name.